We are in Romans chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. I'm going to be reading that in just a moment. The first part of chapter 2, we talked about that no one has an excuse for not knowing the Lord or not receiving the Lord or his plan for them uh, and that everyone will be judged. Last week, we talked about that even the person who has enough knowledge of the Bible to judge others, if they're doing similar things, then they'll be condemned for those things as well. That's why the Bible is very specific about we need to be careful if we're judging people. We can judge people's actions or their fruit, but we really cannot judge if a person is saved or not because that is a personal thing with the Lord. Uh, they may not be as mature. They may have some things in their life that they need to work on, but who doesn't? Amen? Uh, as we were finishing up last week, we talked about that judgment comes to the Jew first, and that's because they're his chosen people. He chose them, and Paul throughout the rest of chapter 2 is going to support that statement Judgment comes to the Jew first. As a matter of fact, um, I feel like that this section is harder on the Jewish person than it is on a Gentile. And that God begins judgment in uh, the Jewish people. So let's read verses 17 through 20, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and you know his will and approve the things that are excellent. Being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So when we begin to look at this, at first it seems like it's very complementary to the Jew, but whenever you begin to really dig into it, we're going to find out that Paul is actually saying that even if you are a Jew, then you need to be concerned about the judgment of God, that just because uh, you are God's chosen people does not mean that God won't judge you. Uh, as we look at this, we'll, we'll see how that comes about. So he says, you're a Jew and you rest on the law. If you were to go to Israel today, they would be extremely proud and probably tell you about it and probably tell you that they were God's chosen people and they would be uh, excited that God had given them the law first. That his law is to them as a nation and they would boast about that uh, that they knew God's law and that they were instructed in God's law uh, if you are raised as a Jew I mean those are national Jews which just come from Israel but then there are the Jewish people who practice Judaism who practice the faith uh, of being a Jew and so they would be very Studied in the law, they would understand God's word and what God's will is. Problem is, 
that they may not be living it. Or they might be living it only in outward fashion, but not in an inward change. That's important for us to, to see. They're God's chosen people, and they feel like, as God's chosen people, they could feel like that their salvation is guaranteed just because of being God's chosen people. Not because of a relationship with Christ, but because of being God's chosen people. The second half of that says they have the form of knowledge. Can't help but make me think of where the Bible says that they have a form of what? Godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They understand God. They understand God's law as far as, as, far as the practice of it goes. Uh, but it is a head knowledge and not a heart nor a necessarily a practicing knowledge. They know enough, like the judging person that we talked about last week, to tell someone when they're wrong, but they may not necessarily live before the Lord like they ought to live. And that's what Paul's uh, here pointing out, that they gratefully receive the law as a gift from God, uh, but just possessing the law does not justify. You can have the law and know the law and read the law and possess it physically, I guess is a, a way to say it, but not live it. Uh, and so uh, that they, they feed, Paul is saying that you as a Jew, remember, so he's, what's the point of all this? Chapter one and chapter two are establishing the fact that the theme of this book is the righteousness of God. In order to prove that we need the righteousness of God, what Paul begins to do is show how that everybody is not righteous on their own. He begins to talk about the Gentile. He begins to talk about the person who is a judge who says, I know enough, but uh, I'm not going to live it myself, but I know enough to, to condemn somebody else, but actually I'm condemn myself in, in doing that. And the same way with the uh, Jew who possesses the law, but is not justified because in his heart, he's not changed. Even in the Old Testament, it was a matter of the heart. We're going to read some scripture later on that talks about circumcision. We don't talk about that much. But even in the Old Testament, the Bible tells them that, the circ that circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, but a matter of the heart. Uh, this is a, a matter of Paul saying, you know what is right, but you're not doing it and your heart is not in the right place. So let's read Romans 2, 21 through 24. Here we'll see the indictment against the Jewish man. He said, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God? Through breaking the law. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, 
as it is written. He's saying, you're teaching other people, but are you teaching yourself? So it comes down to this principle of you have the law, you've been given the law, you understand the law, but do you keep it yourself? You can even see how others are breaking the law, but do you see how you break it yourself? That's what he's saying of the Jew. How many knows, I'm, I'm actually in an Old Testament class right now, uh, which is very fitting because Romans brings up a whole lot of Old Testament uh, things. How many laws, can anybody know, or may somebody take a guess, how many laws are contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible? According to my study, 633. So 630 something different laws. So they understood the law, they were taught the law, how many can imagine 633 laws trying to, keep, trying to keep up with it, number one, and keep from not breaking them? That's a lot. It's more than just the Decalogue, which is another way of saying the Ten Commandments. It's more than that. It's all the other things that go along with that in order to uh, keep the law. Uh, he's saying... You've got to not only understand the law, but keep it. If I can jump ahead, I mean, knows that no man can keep the law. That's the problem with the law, is that we can't keep it. That's the reason why when you jump forward to the New Testament, and it's great because you hear of God's grace. In Paul's day, the uh, rabbis interpreted the law, so they were completely, they felt like because they're interpreting the law that they're totally justified. Oh, I know what it says. I'm even interpreting the law. Therefore, I'm good with God. But just because you interpret it, Paul say, doesn't mean that you're doing it because it's a matter of the heart as well. How many knows that God is concerned with both our actions and our attitudes? You can have the wrong attitude and do the right thing or you can have the right attitude and still do the wrong thing sometimes. And God's concerned about both. God's concerned about our actions and our attitudes. Uh, and sometimes we don't want to be evaluated by one or the other. Well, don't look at my actions, just look at my attitude. Or don't look at my attitude, just look at my actions. Uh, but God will hold us accountable for both our attitude and our actions. That's the reason why Paul is saying this to the Jew. You have an intellectual, how many knows there's a difference in an intellectual understanding and an application? And so the Jew, uh, the, the Jew not all Jews, obviously, uh, but Paul is saying all of us, Jew, Gentile, everybody needs to understand that we'll be judged by the Lord. Therefore, that's why I'm going to talk about God's righteousness and how God will give us his righteousness and we don't have to be concerned about our own. Does that mean that we can live however we want to? A hypocrite can talk about religion, but they're still a sinner. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Paul was so adamant about telling the Jew that they must be careful 
that he said, the Bible has written something about you, is that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because the Jew understood the law, but they did not obey the law, and it would cause the Gentiles to blaspheme God. The very people who were God's chosen people, who were the ones who were given the law, but they were living not according to the law. And so when a Gentile would look at them, they'd say, why are you living like that? This God thing, this God thing must not be real. The reason why the Gentiles would blaspheme God is because the Jews failed to obey the law. Let's scoot on down to Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. Here's where he's going to talk about circumcision. Irrelevant it is. Meaning, it doesn't matter. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. When is circumcision profitable? If you keep the law. Why is it profitable if you keep the law? More than just a symbol, it's, it, it's, uh, it's profitable to you because you're being obedient to the Lord and other people, well, they may or may not know that you are, but uh, that you're living what you're, what, you're, what you're saying that you are. So it's profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So when we begin to look at this, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, if you're a Jew and you're trying to follow the law, and you're circumcised, then it's profitable to you. You're trying to obey the law. You won't be able to keep it in all facets, but if there is some uh, profit to you uh, spiritually if you are circumcised and you're trying to follow the law. But if there is a Gentile who's not circumcised, and even with him being uncircumcised and not really understanding all of the codes of the law, he's still keeping the heart of the law or the spirit of the law, then actually he is better to judge you than you are to judge other people, uh, is what Paul is saying. For he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but one who is inwardly. It's a matter of the heart, it's a matter of the spirit. How I many knows that even in grace, we can't really live for the Lord effectively without the Spirit. We, we can try, uh, but we need that empowerment of the Spirit. We need that guiding of the Holy Spirit. 
we need the spirit to say don't go there don't do that yes do this yes do that uh, so we need the empowering of the spirit uh, even in an age of grace to live for the Lord Paul is saying a person who is living by their heart by their conscience is another way of saying that for the Lord is actually better equipped to judge other people than one who is just a Jew in name, but not in deed, not practicing, not really uh, sold out to the Lord. For the Jew, they believe that circumcision guaranteed their salvation. The Jew actually believes, and I just learned this, that he might be punished in the world to come but that he could never be lost because of his circumcision. Not taught anywhere in the Bible, but again, that's one of those things that are passed down traditionally uh, with the Jews. Here's another uh, interesting thing. In Paul's day, right after Christ had ascended, uh, Paul begins to do all of his missionary journeys. He's called by the Lord. Some rabbis taught that Abraham sat at the entrance of hell and made certain that none of his circumcised descendants were there. Wow, what a teaching. What an off-balance teaching, uh, if I can say that. They taught that anyone who was circumcised would not go to hell. What does circumcision do for the Jew? No good if they're not trying to live for the Lord. So it's irrelevant to them. We could say the same thing about baptism. A lot of people, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I need you to baptize. And they didn't even have a relationship with the Lord. They just felt like that's what was going to save them, was just getting baptized. And that's not at all what the Bible teaches. And then I've had to sit with people and explain that, you know, this is symbolic of something that has already happened. So if you haven't already given your life to Christ, then we've got the cart before the horse. Circumcision and baptism in the same way, if they are just ritualistic in themselves, they don't have the power to say. It is about how we live for the Lord. It's a matter of the heart being sold out to the Lord. Interestingly, in the ancient world, the Egyptians also circumcised their uh, boys. In Abraham's day, Ishmael, who was not the son of the promise, would have been circumcised simply because he was Abraham's son, but it did not make him a son of the covenant. So really what Paul's saying is circumcision is not what it's all about. You know what that meant to the Jew? They were blown out of the water. What do you mean? This is the covenant that God had with Abraham. But what is Paul saying? It is circumcision or cutting away of the heart, right? Uh, that matters. That it's a heart that is uh, not hardened, a heart that is not uh, stony, a heart that is not flesh, uh, but a heart that is soft and uh, given over to the Lord. So that's what it's that's what it's about. So 
circumcision and baptism uh, can be similar. Have you ever been to the, anybody ever bought some at the grocery store and it had one label on it, but when you got home, it was something else? Anybody ever done that? I know it can happen. I haven't ever done that before, but if there are carrots inside a can, you can put a label on it that says peas, but it doesn't change what's inside. The same thing, you can circumcise someone or baptize someone, and on the outside it might say Christian or Jew, but on the inside it's different. We have to make sure that the inside of us matches the label that has been put on the outside. All throughout uh, Jesus' teaching, he brings this subject up because what he's trying to do is let the Jews understand that while they are the, uh, their father is Abraham, that just because their father is Abraham does not mean that they have everything right with God. That scripture that I was talking about uh, in, is in Deuteronomy. It's the law of Moses teaches this principle. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. So this concept is not just a New Testament concept. It is a concept that when God first implemented circumcision for the Jew, he's saying, this is an outward sign. Just like baptism is an outward sign or a public testimony, this is an outward sign, but what it's really about is about a relationship between uh, the Jew and God or the Christian and the Lord, right? That's if you're looking at baptism and, and circumcision. Uh, so it's not new at all. And it's found throughout the Bible. Having the law or having a ceremony isn't enough. God requires Righteousness. What is righteousness? It's living what? Right with God. Living right with God. Uh, so a ceremony doesn't make us live right for the Lord. Ceremony or a uh, something like a baptism or circumcision is a, is a symbol of what we have determined that we're going to try to do for the Lord. We're going to try to live for the Lord. I'm going to get in that tank and I'm going to die like the Lord did. You know, when I baptize people, I tell them to, number one, don't fight me because dead people don't fight. Right? And that's what this is about. I think I, I told you that uh, when I baptized you. He said, don't, don't fight me because uh, number one, it won't turn out real good for either one of us. We'll both get baptized. And, you know, But I have people lay their hand over the chest as if they're in a coffin. They're dead. And we're going to bury you in Christ. The old man is passing away. And when we raise you, you're a new creature in Christ. Now, that didn't spiritually actually change you, but it was a determination in your heart and mind that this is a point in time that I'm going to declare, number one, that I'm baptized into Christ. It's a public testimony, but also... When you get baptized, you're being baptized into a body, into the church specifically. So that is important. So he's telling the Jew 
Even with your written code, they had so many laws they had to have a code. Like the IRS, yeah. Even with your written code and circumcision, you're still a transgressor of the law. Now Jesus spoke a whole lot about this and he was kind of going there. Whenever he said, he took the law and he said, uh, so if you were to look after a woman and lust upon her, now it doesn't say that you had fornication, but if you just look at her and you have thoughts of lust, then you've already broken the law. Wow. You've murdered someone essentially by verbally talking about them and speaking ill of them or by hating them. So Jesus is, what is he doing? He's taking it to the level of, here's the code, but what is the meaning? And what's the heart of it? Because how many knows when there's a law, we stay right on the edge of it. Matter of fact, most of the time we go a little bit over the law. I'm thinking about the speed limit. When the speed limit's 55, most of us understand that we're probably not going to get a ticket if we go what? 61. 60, 61, right? If the speed limit's 70, most of us... 76. 75, 77, somewhere in there, right? Uh, so what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to go a little bit past the law, push the limits. And so uh, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to get to the heart of this. It's not about the, the strict line, but it's about the heart. Why are you doing that? The heart is dreadfully wicked. Yes, it is. Uh, so last week we talked a little bit about, and I purposefully brought it up, what about this person in the deepest, darkest place in Africa who's never heard of the Lord? When my Bible study, along with this, this week, it, talks, it talked about the same thing. Uh, and it said that, that that particular person will be guilty before God because no one has ever lived by their conscience in a perfect way. We always break our conscience. Even without having broken necessarily the law written of God in the Bible, we have broken the conscience that God put inside of us. And so we're guilty. What God does with that person who hasn't heard the scripture, there's still a, a question in my mind, but they're guilty. But is God merciful or what does God do with them, right? Uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. That statement that says, whose praise is not from men, but from God. All the outward signs of religion can be there. When I went to Jerusalem, you see Israel, you see in Jerusalem as, as well, you see people dressed way differently. You see national Jews who are totally different. You see ultra conservative Jews. You see those who are uh, very strict, and I forgot what the name was for them. But anyway, they're all different. Some of them have curls on the side of their face, the side of their uh, their hair is curly, comes down real long. Uh, they have a beard, they have all these different things. So you can, 
what's Paul saying here? You can have the outward sign of religion, and when you do, you might get praise from men, but you will never get praise from God for just an outward sign of religion. It always has to be about the heart. So the evidence of our rightness with God is not in the outward signs or in the outward works. That doesn't mean that we don't do works for God, but the evidence is about the internal, the heart, the inside of us, found in how God works in us and the fruit that he produces in us. I never get in trouble for being too, too short, right? Romans chapter 2 is all about God's judgment, whether you're Jew, Gentile, or the person who knows enough about God to judge others, but they themselves aren't living, right? That's the whole of chapter 2. So there are seven principles of God's judgment that are in this chapter, and I just kind of want to go down through the chapter real quick. There's some elements of God's judgment, because that's what we're going to talk about. God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, is the theme of Romans. So according to Romans 2.2, 2, anybody got your Bible open? Romans 2.2, 2, how does God judge? According, yes, according to truth. So one of the principles of God's judgment is not about anything but the truth. In other words, you can profess anything, but do you really live it? So God's saying, I'm going to judge you not on what you profess, not on what you look like, but on the truth. How are you really living for God? Second thing is God's judgment is according to accumulated guilt. That's found in Romans 2.5. Remember the scripture that talks about that you're heaping, basically, the guilt upon yourself and God's judgment upon yourself. So God doesn't, we, we talked about this, God doesn't always judge immediately. And I'm, I'm thankful that he doesn't because sometimes it gives us a chance to repent. But if we don't repent, what happens is that God's judgment begins to heap upon us and eventually we will be judged by the Lord. And so uh, God's judgment, the second thing is God's judgment is according to accumulated guilt. Third thing is God's judgment is according to works. Romans chapter two, verse six. You might look at me funny. God judges according to your works. Didn't say your salvation was according to your works, but God does judge according to your works. So God's righteousness, his righteous judgment is about your works. And he, it says he'll render to each one according to his deeds, what he does. We will be judged, we'll be accountable for what we have done in this life. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That we'll be judged by that. Romans 2.11 tells us that God's judgment is without. You may there? Romans 2.11. Favoritism or partiality. Yeah. So no matter who you are, and all of chapter 2 is emphasizing this, Jew, Gentile, somebody who knows a lot about the Lord but isn't living it, doesn't matter, 
God's not going to be partial. He's going to judge you the same way he does everybody else. And so there's not partiality with God. God's judgment, according to Romans 2.13, is according to performance, not knowledge. Performance, not knowledge. So in other words, you can know what to do, but don't do it. And the Bible says something about that. What does it say? If you know to do good and you don't do it, it is what? So God judges based upon performance and not knowledge. You should do what you know to do, right? Romans 2.16, God's judgment goes into the secret places of your heart. We talked about this last week, and this is just a synopsis of Romans chapter 2. What are those secret, those secret, sitting, uh, sitting, hidden things? I try to combine two words there, it didn't work out very well. Hidden sins. Uh, those secret things that maybe nobody else found out about. Maybe you are able to hide it from everyone else, but God's judgment goes into those secret sins in our life, those secret uh, things that we would like to hide from him. It's interesting to me that right off the bat when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't go to God and say, we did it. We, we knew better, but we did it. What did they do? They hid. I don't know if they hide. Then they said, that daggone woman you gave me, God. She said the snake. <laughs> and then she said the snake, right? Uh, so they began to cast blame whenever the blame was actually uh, upon them. Romans 2.29, which is the last thing that we read, is about God judging according to reality, not according to religious profession or identification. Doesn't matter, and that is in your question, by the way, uh, it doesn't matter what we profess or what we identify as ourselves. It matters about the reality. Are we really, truly Christian? Are we really sold out to the Lord? Are we living for him? I have literally had people say to me when I said, do you know the Lord as your Savior? And they, they don't know how to answer. Well, I, I, I went to church when I was a kid. My mom was a, a Baptist. Well, that's nothing about them, right? What is the reality of your heart? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? It's not about how you identify. It's not about what you profess. It's about what you really are. Uh, and so that's how the Lord judges. We could go a lot of places with that last statement, and I'll just leave it alone. How do you wrap up this chapter, which basically says, God's going to judge each one of us. Jew, Gentile, even the people who know a whole lot about the Lord but don't really seem to be able to live. What, where's the hope in this? It's found in this same chapter where it says that it's God's goodness that leads us to salvation. Because God's a good God. And he doesn't want any of us to perish, right? He would that all would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? So that's the good news in all of this. I mean, the bad news is 
The cards are stacked against us as humans, right? We're part of a lineage when we're first even born, we're born into sin. God will judge that sin. And we don't have to worry about being born into sin because we'll sin right off the bat anyway. You don't have to teach a little kid how not to share because they already know how not to share, right? They know how to live in that rebellious life. Uh, so the hope for all of us is that God's goodness leads us and wants us to become saved. That's the, that's the goodness of that. To hear about God's righteousness and our sinfulness and how God has to judge that. But it's the truth. God has to just thank the Lord that he sent Jesus for us, right? Uh, so we could live for him, so that he could take our place, so that uh, he would go to the cross and not us, so that uh, we could have eternal life because he perished and died, but then he rose again, right? Uh, so that's the that's the good news in all of that, even though we don't really see all of that quite yet in chapter one, two, but we know it's coming. All right, we're going to go through these questions that I have laid out here. All right, question number one, based on uh, verses seventeen and eighteen, what did Paul say the Jew boasted in? Say again, the law. Yes. Specifically, their knowledge of the law and their knowledge of God. We know about his law. Didn't say we know how to live it, but they're boasting about their chosenness is one way you could put that, right? Question number two. I don't really like the way I worded this, but hopefully you're able to. What four things were Jews confident in themselves confident in themselves? There's there's a statement there that says you are a guide to the blind. Guide to the blind, that's right. Light in darkness. A light in the darkness. Instructor of the foolish. Yes. And teacher of babes. Teacher of babes. Okay. So even with my terrible wording in that question, you got what I was asking for. So here's the Jew not only boasting. But now confident in themselves. Who I mean, knows that when it comes to the Lord, we're confident in ourselves and we're about to get into a problem area. Uh, because our confidence and our boasting needs to be in the Lord. Question number three. Paul said the Jews' problem was that you have a blank of knowledge and truth. A form. In other words, you just have the the structure, but you don't really know about. Question number four. What causes the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles? Breaking of the law. The failure of the Jew to obey the law that God gave to them causes the, the Gentile to blaspheme God. Question five, and just to fill in the blank from one of the scriptures there. Circumcision is indeed profitable if, if you keep the law. Question six. Paul said circumcision is about the heart, not the outer flesh. 
Hopefully you'll get question number seven. All outward signs of religion may earn us praise from men, men or men, but they will not earn us praise from, from God. Question number eight. This section, meaning this chapter, teaches that God does not judge according to religious ceremony or profession. Ceremony, profession, identification, all those 